You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and Rudolf Steiner Press in .com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. This is Lecture 4, entitled Christmas at a Time of Grievous Destiny, given in Basel on the 21st of December 1916. The yearly celebration of the physical birth of the being who entered earth evolution in order to give that evolution its meaning has for many people become a matter of habit. But if we are to remain true to the task of our spiritual scientific movement, we will not be content with celebrating a festival of mere custom, as is so general nowadays. And it will be fitting at this grave time to turn our minds to many things that are connected particularly with the physical birth of Christ Jesus. We have often considered and contemplated how in Christ Jesus two beings merge, as it were, into one, the Christ being and the human Jesus being. In the evolution of Christianity there has been much conflict, much conflict of dogma, about the meaning of the union of Christ with Jesus in the being whose physical birth is celebrated at the Christmas festival. We, of course, recognize in the Christ a cosmic, super-earthly being, a being who descended from spiritual worlds, in order, through his birth in a physical man, to impart meaning to earth evolution. And in Jesus we recognize the one who as man was predestined after thirty years of preparation to unite the Christ being with himself, to receive the Christ being into himself. If we look a little beyond all the strife and conflict of dogma about the nature of the union of Christ with Jesus, we will find that the relationship of Christ to Jesus points us toward significant secrets of mankind's earthly evolution. If, in the endeavor to understand something of the union of Christ with Jesus, we follow events up to the present day and reflect upon what has still to take place in the evolution of humanity before this relationship can be rightly understood, then we touch upon one of the deepest secrets of human knowledge and human life. At the time when Christ was about to enter the evolution of humanity, it was possible through faculties that were a heritage from the days of the old clairvoyant wisdom to form certain conceptions of the sublimity of the Christ being. And at that time there existed a wisdom of which people often speak nowadays in an irreverent way, but of which they are scarcely able to form any true idea. There existed something which until now has been rooted out from human evolution by certain currents running counter to the deeper revelations of Christianity. This was the Gnosis, a wisdom into which had flowed much of the ancient knowledge revealed to people in atavistic clairvoyance. Every trace of the Gnosis 
whether in script or oral tradition, was eradicated root and branch by the dogmatic Christianity of the West. After this gnosis had striven to find an answer to the question, Who is the Christ? We cannot think of returning to the gnosis, for it belongs to an age that is past. True, its eradication was caused by malice, ignorance, enmity toward knowledge and wisdom, but for all that it happened out of an underlying necessity. When anthroposophical spiritual science is accused of wanting to revive the ancient gnosis, that is only one of the many expressions of ill-will directed toward it today. The accusation is, of course, made by people whose ignorance of the gnosis is on a par with their ignorance of anthroposophy. There is no question of reviving the gnosis, but of recognizing it as something great and mighty, something that endeavored in the time now lying 1900 years behind us to give an answer to the question, Who is the Christ? Before the inner eye, E-Y-E, of the Gnostic lay a glorious vista of spiritual worlds, with the hierarchies ranged in their order, one above the other. The Gnostic saw how Christ had descended to the worlds of the spiritual hierarchies to enter into the mortal frame of a human being. And he tried to envisage how the Christ had come from heights of spirit, how he had been conceived on earth. The best way to get some idea of the knowledge then existing is to reflect that everything produced by the world after the eradication of the Gnosis was paltry in comparison with the grandeur of the Gnostic idea of the Christ. The mystery wisdom underlying the Gospels is infinitely great, greater by far than anything which later theology has been able to discover from them. To realize how paltry and insignificant the current conception of the Christ being is compared with the Gnosis, we have but to steep ourselves in the ancient Gnostic idea of Him. Picturing this, one is awestruck by the grandeur of the conception of the Christ being entering into a human body from cosmic heights, from far distant cosmic worlds. This majestic, sublime concept of Christ has fallen away. All the dogmatic definitions handed down to us as Arian or Athanasian principles of faith are meager in comparison with the Gnostic conception, which combined insight into the being of Christ with wisdom about the nature of the world. Only the merest fragments of this great Gnostic conception of Christ have survived. This, then, is one aspect of the relationship of Christ to Jesus. That Christ came into the world at a time when the wisdom capable of understanding Him, yearning to understand Him, had already been rooted out. People who speak of the ancient Gnosis as Oriental fantasy that had to be eradicated for the good of Western humanity have always believed themselves to be good Christians. In reality, though, the age lacked the strength to unite earthly with heavenly concepts. One must have a feeling for the tragic in order to understand human evolution. How long after the mystery of Golgotha was the Jerusalem temple, 
the sanctuary of peace destroyed. The temple of Solomon stood within the precincts of the city of Jerusalem. The wisdom of the Gnosis was contained in Solomon's temple as symbolism. Cosmic secrets were presented in symbols and pictures, and it was intended that those who entered the temple, where the pictures all around them found reflection in their souls, should receive something through which alone they became truly human. The purpose of the temple of Solomon was to fill the souls of those permitted to enter it with the meaning of the universe. What the temple revealed was something that the earth as such did not reveal. All the secrets which shine down into the earth from the far reaches of the universe. If one of the old initiates possessing real knowledge of the temple of Solomon had been asked, quote, why was the temple of Solomon built? Close quote, the answer would have been somewhat as follows. Quote, in order that here on the earth there shall be a beacon light for those powers who accompany the souls seeking their way into earthly bodies. Close quote. I'm going to read that again. Quote, in order that here on the earth there shall be a beacon light for those powers who accompany the souls seeking their way into earthly bodies. Close quote. Let us try to grasp what this means. These old initiates knew that when human beings were being guided down into earthly bodies, in accordance with all the signs of the zodiac, particular souls must be led to bodies able to receive and reflect the great symbols of the Temple of Solomon. This in the nature of things could give rise to arrogance. If the knowledge was not received with humility, with the humility of the Essenes, it led men into Phariseeism. But at all events, this was the situation. Earthly eyes looked up to the heavens, beholding the stars. The spiritual eyes of those who were guiding souls from cosmic worlds to the earth gazed downward and beheld the temple of Solomon with its symbols. To them, it was like a star, whose light enabled them to guide the souls into bodies capable of receiving its meaning. It was the central star of the earth, shining out with special brightness into the spiritual heights. When Christ Jesus had come to the earth, when the mystery of Golgotha had taken place, every single human soul should have been able to mirror within itself, quote, My kingdom is not of this world. Close quote. It was then that the external physical temple of Solomon lost its significance and its destiny was tragically fulfilled. Moreover, there was no longer anyone able to mirror within themselves the temple's symbols. No one, therefore, who could comprehend the full depth and significance of the Christ being. But the Christ himself had now entered earth evolution, had become part of it. That is the all-important fact. The Gnostics were the last survivors of the bearers of that ancient atavistic earth wisdom, which was comprehensive and powerful enough to make some understanding of the Christ possible. That is one aspect of the relation of Christ to Jesus. In those days the Christ being could have been understood through the Gnosis, but this did not accord with the world's destiny. 
although the Gnosis teemed with wisdom concerning the Christ. And it may truly be said that the path taken by Christianity through the countries of the South, through Greece, Italy, Spain, and so on, led more and more to the obliteration of insight into the essential nature of Christ. And Rome, sinking into decline, was destined to bring about the final extinction of understanding. In regard to this relation of the Christ to Jesus, it is strange that on the one hand we find the Gnosis illuminating a sublime conception of the Christ, which died away as Christianity passed through the Roman system, while on the other hand the concept of Jesus came to the fore when Christianity encountered the peoples from the north. In the south the concept of Christ flickered out. The form in which the concept of Jesus emerged was by no means very sublime, but it gripped people's hearts and feelings in such a way that something wonderfully absorbing stirred in their souls at the thought of how the child who receives the Christ is born in the holy night. Just as in the south the concept of Christ was inadequate, so in the north was man's feeling for Jesus. But for all that it was a feeling that stirred the very depths of the human heart. Yet in itself it is not quite comprehensible. For if we contrast the immeasurable significance of Christ Jesus for the evolution of humanity with all the sentimental trivialities about, quote, dear little Jesus, close quote, contained in many poems and hymns commonly used to move the human heart, for in their egoism, People believe that these trivialities kindle emotions capable of storming the heavens. Then we have a direct impression that something is striving to establish itself and take root, but is not fully able to do so. That one element is mingling with another in such a way that the deeper meaning, the far deeper significance, remains in the subconsciousness. What actually is it that remains in the subconsciousness while the Jesus thought, the Jesus feeling, the Jesus experience comes to the surface? The process takes a strange and remarkable course. The understanding for Christ sank into the subconsciousness. In the subconsciousness an understanding for Jesus began to glow. In the subconsciousness, not in the consciousness, which was powerless, an awareness of Christ that was flickering out and an awareness of Jesus that was beginning to stir were destined to meet and counterbalance each other. Why was it then that the peoples who came down from Scandinavia, from the north of present-day Russia, received Christianity without the Christ idea, which to begin with was wholly foreign to them? Why was it that they received Christianity with the Jesus idea? Why was Christmas the festival which above all others spoke to the human heart, awakened in the human heart feelings of holy bliss? Why was it? What was present in this Europe which received from the South a completely distorted Christianity? What was it that kindled in people's hearts the idea which then in the Christmas festival created such a very deep expression of feeling. The ground had been laid, but people had largely forgotten in what way this had occurred. 
They had been prepared by the old northern mysteries, but they had forgotten their import and meaning. We have to go very far back into the past to discover in the inner meaning of the northern mysteries the deep secret of the penetration of the Jesus feeling into the soul life of the European peoples. The principles underlying the northern mysteries were quite different from those underlying the mysteries of Asia Minor and of the South. They were more intimately and directly connected with the existence of the stars, with nature, with earthly fertility, than the wisdom represented in symbols within a temple. The mystery truths are not the childish trifles presented by certain mystic sects today. They are great and potent impulses in the evolution of mankind. Present-day anthroposophy can no more revert to the gnosis than mankind can revert to what the ancient mysteries of the North signified for human evolution. And to believe that such mystery truths are now being revealed because of some kind of hankering to go back to what was once alive in them would be a foolish misunderstanding. It is for the sake of deepening self-recollection, self-knowledge, that mankind today must be made aware of the content of such mysteries. For the northern mysteries were linked with the whole evolution of the universe, through the earth, just as Gnostic wisdom was inspired by the cosmos, was connected with happenings in the far distances of the universe. At the root of these ancient northern mysteries lay the secret of man in his connection with the secrets of the universe, lay an understanding deeper than at any other point in earth evolution of his physical existence here on the physical earth. But we have to go very far back, to about three thousand years before Christ, perhaps even earlier, to understand what was alive in the hearts of those in whom, later on, the feeling for Jesus arose. Somewhere in the region of the peninsula of Jutland, in present-day Denmark, was the ancient mystery center in which those significant impulses originated. And let the modern intellect judge of this as it will, these impulses were connected with the fact that in the third millennium before Christ, in certain northern tribes, only those people were regarded as worthy citizens of the earth who were born in certain weeks of the winter season. The reason for this was as follows. On the Jutland Peninsula, whose tribes were called the Ingavonis, or at least were so called by Tacitus, the temple priests of the mystery sites encouraged sexual union to take place only at a certain time in the first quarter of the year, at the time of the first full moon after the spring equinox. Only then could sexual union occur among those who truly wished to feel united with the spiritual worlds, as became their human dignity. Any sexual union outside the period ordained by this mystery center was taboo. And anyone not born in the period of the darkest nights, at the time of greatest cold, toward our new year, was regarded as an inferior being. The strength characteristic of these tribes was marveled at by Tacitus, even though it was on the wane when he was writing a century after the mystery of Golgotha. 
This physical strength arose from the fact that the forces normally drawn upon in sexual union were channeled into its development during the whole of the rest of the year. And so those who belonged to the tribe of the Ingabonis, and to a lesser degree this was also true of the other Germanic tribes, experienced the process of conception with particular intensity at the time of the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Readers aside, Ingavonis, I'm pronouncing it that way, is spelled I-N-G-A-E-V-O-N-E-S, and I'm pronouncing that Ingavonis, and the readers aside. They did not experience it in wide-awake consciousness, but, as it were, heralded in dream. Yet they understood its significance for the connection between the human being and the heavens. A spiritual being appeared to the woman who was to conceive and, in a kind of vision, told her of the human being who, through her, was to come to the earth. This entry of a human soul into physical existence was experienced only in semi-consciousness. Subconsciously, these people knew that they were under the direction of the gods, who were given the name of Vanin. Readers aside, spelled W-A-N-E-N. End of footnote. End of readers aside. This is connected with the word Vainin. In uh, readers aside, W-A-umlaut H-N-E-N. Vainin. End of readers aside. Meaning something which takes its course not in clear intellectual waking consciousness, but in an aware dream consciousness. What was once in existence and fitting for its own epoch is often preserved in later times in symbols. This holy and subconscious mystery of the generation of a human being, which led to all births being concentrated in a particular period of the winter season, so that it was regarded as sinful for someone to be born at another time, was preserved in fragments which passed over to a later consciousness as the Hertha or Erda, or Nerthus saga. No erudition, as scholars themselves openly admit, has hitherto been able to interpret these fragments, for actually all that is known externally of the Nerthus saga, with the exception of a few brief references, comes from Tacitus, who writes as follows about the Nerthus or Hertakulch. Quote, Rudigni, Aviones, Angli, Varini, Udoses, Sarini, and Naratones, Germanic peoples living amidst rivers and woods, that is, roughly the several tribes who belong to the Ingamones, specially revere Nerthus, that is, Mother Earth, and they believe that she intervenes in human affairs, makes journeys to the peoples. Close quote. Steiner again. In the ancient cult of the Vanen, Every woman who was to bring a soul to earth knew in dream consciousness that the goddess, later called Nerthus, would appear to her. The divinity was, however, represented not exactly as female, but as male-female. It was not until later, through a corruption, that Nerthus became an entirely feminine principle. Just as the archangel Gabriel drew near to Mary, Nerthus on her chariot drew near to the woman who was about to give a citizen to the earth. The woman concerned saw this in the spirit. Later, when the mystery impulse in this form 
had long since died out. Echoes of the happening were celebrated in symbolic rites, which Tacitus was still able to witness, and of which he says the following, quote, On an island of the ocean is a sacred grove, and in it there is a consecrated chariot covered with a veil. Only the priest may approach it, close quote, Parenthesis, this priest was thought to be the initiate of the Hertha mystery. Close parenthesis, continue, quote, he knows when the goddess appears in the sacred chariot. He becomes aware of the presence of the goddess in her holy place and in deep reverence accompanies her chariot drawn by cows. Then there are days of joy and feasting in all the places which the goddess honors with a visit. Then there are joyous days and wedding feasts. At those times no war is waged. No weapons are handled, the sword is sheathed. Only peace and quiet are at those times known or desired, until the goddess, tired of her sojourn among mortals, is led back into her shrine by the same priest. Quote. Steiner again. This was a true account of the vision. In such ancient records the descriptions are accurate and exact, only people do not understand them. Quote, then there are joyous days and wedding feasts. At those times no war is waged, no weapons are handled, the sword is sheathed. And so it truly was. At the time which is now our Easter, when human beings believed in their inmost soul that the time of earthly fruitfulness had come for them too, when the souls born at the time that is now our Christmas were conceived. Easter was the time of conception. The experience was regarded as a holy cosmic mystery, and it was this that was symbolized later on by the Nerthus cult. The whole experience was veiled in the subconscious region of the soul and might not rise up into consciousness. This is hinted at in the description of the cult given by Tacitus, quote, Only peace and quiet are at those times known or desired, until the goddess, tired of her sojourn among mortals, is led back into her shrine by the same priest. Then the chariot, the veil, and the goddess herself are bathed in a hidden lake. Slaves perform the cult, slaves who are at once swallowed up as forfeit by the lake, so that all knowledge of these things sinks into the night of unconsciousness. A secret horror and a sacred darkness hold sway over a being who is able to behold only the sacrifice of death. Close quote. Steiner again. Everything that comes into the world calls forth a Luciferic and an Aramonic counterpart. The event, as experienced by the Ingavonis, was part of the regular ordained evolution of mankind, connected with the time of the first full moon after the vernal equinox. But owing to the precession of the equinox, what had remained from olden days as a dream experience was gradually transferred to a later date, and thereby became aramonic. When the experience that had arisen in ancient times in the true Hertha cult was advanced about four weeks, it became aramonic. This meant that the union of the woman with the spiritual world was sought in an irregular way, at the wrong time. Here lies the explanation of the institution of the Valpurgis night between the 30th of April and the 1st of May. It is nothing but an aramonic transposition of time. Luciferic transposition of time goes backward, 
harmonic transposition of time runs in the opposite direction because it is connected with the precession of the equinox. Thus the harmonic Mephistophelian form of the Herticult, the perversion into the diabolic, later became the Valpurgis night. It is connected with the most ancient mysteries, of which only faint echoes remain. Much of the content of these ancient northern mysteries lived on, if the matter is rightly understood, in the Scandinavian mysteries. There, instead of Nerthus, we find Frigo, a god who, according to the symbolism associated with him, but this can become intelligible only through spiritual science, turns into the very betrayer of what lies at the root of this mystery. One more thing must be mentioned in regard to these mystery practices. You can see that if the human seed was ripening from the time of the vernal full moon to winter time, one such human being would be the first to be born each year. Among the Ingavonis, the first to be born during these holy nights, the holy nights of every third year in the most ancient times, was chosen as their leader when he reached the age of thirty, and he remained leader for three years, for three years only. What happened to him then, I may perhaps be able to tell you on another occasion. Careful investigation reveals that not only are Frigg, Frey, Freiga, merely additional designations for Nerthus, as is the Scandinavian Nert, but the name Ing itself, whence Ing of Onis is another name for Nerthus. Those who were connected with the mystery called themselves, quote, those belonging to the god or the goddess Ing, Ing of Onis. Close quote. Only fragments of what really lived in this mystery survived in the external world. One such fragment consists of the words of Tacitus already quoted. Another fragment is the well-known Anglo-Saxon rune of a few lines only. These famous lines are known to every philologist of the Germanic languages, but no one understands their meaning. They are approximately as follows, quote, Ing was first seen among the East Danes. Later he went toward the east. He walked over the waves, followed by his chariot. Close quote. In this Anglo-Saxon rune there is an echo of the old mystery customs of the Easter conception and the birth time of Christmas. What happened then in the spiritual world was known best on the Danish peninsula. Hence the rune correctly says, Quoting was first seen among the East Danes. Then came the time when this ancient knowledge fell more and more into corruption, when it was to be found only in echoes, in symbolism. This was the time in the evolution of humanity when influences originating in the warm countries spread abroad. And unlike the cold countries, these influences are not connected with the intimate relations between the seasons and people's inner experiences. From the warm countries came the impulse which resulted in the distribution of conceptions and births over the whole year. This, of course, had already happened in the South, even in the days of the old atavistic clairvoyance. Now it spread northward, permeating the old principles at a time when in the cold regions the Wanan held sway, and in the South the temple mysteries had long since superseded the old nature mysteries. 
the southern practice spread toward the north, mingling with the old customs. At this time the Vanan gods were superseded by the Asan gods. Just as the Vanan are connected with Venan, so are the Asan connected with the German Sein, being, that is to say, being or existence in the material world, which the mind tries to grasp externally. The people of the North entered an age in which individual intelligence began to assert itself. The Asan supplanted the Vanan, and the old mystery customs fell into decay. They passed over into isolated, scattered mystery communities of the East. And one being only, he in whom the whole meaning of the earth was to be made new, he in whom the Christ was to dwell, he alone was destined to unite within himself what had once been the essence and content of the northern mysteries. Hence the origin of the account in St. Luke's Gospel of the appearance of the archangel Gabriel to Mary is to be sought in the visions of spiritual realities once reflected in the Nerthus symbol of the ancient northern mysteries. The symbol had moved eastward. Spiritual science discloses this today, and this alone explains the meaning of the Anglo-Saxon rune. For Nerthus and Ing are the same. Of Ing, it is said, quote, Ing was first seen among the East Danes. Later he went toward the East. He walked over the waves, followed by his chariot, close quote, over the waves of the clouds, that is, just as Nerthus moved over the waves of the clouds. What had once been general in the colder regions here became singular, individual. It occurred as a single unique event and we find it again in the descriptions given in the Gospel of St. Luke. But whatever has once existed in the world and has taken root, whatever is anchored in the heart's understanding, remains a possession of the soul. And when knowledge of Christianity arrived in the north from the Roman south, something connected with ancient mystery customs was received with it not in clear consciousness, but subconsciously, feelingly. Hence in the North people were able to develop a particularly intense feeling for Jesus. The reality that had lived in the old Nerthus mystery had already sunk into subconsciousness. Yet in the subconscious it was present, it was sensed and felt. In long past ages in the far North, when the earth was still covered with forests, home to the bison and elk. Families came together in their snow-covered huts and under their lantern lights gathered round each newborn child, speaking of how this new life had brought to them the new light announced by the heavens in the previous spring. Such was the ancient Christmas. To these people who were one day to receive the tidings of Christendom, it was said, quote, In the hour that is especially holy, one destined for greatness is born. Close quote. This was the child born first after midnight in the night designated as holy. And when, in a later age, the tidings came that such a one had been born in far-off Asia, one in whom lived the Christ, who had come down from the world of the stars to the earth, something of the old feeling came alive in people, although they no longer possessed the ancient knowledge. The present age must come to understand such things more and more deeply. 
must thereby grasp, in a real and concrete way, the meaning of the evolution of humanity. Truths of mighty, awe-inspiring significance are contained in the Holy Scriptures, not just the trivialities of which we so often hear in religious teachings today, but sacred truths which thrill through the very fibers of our being, stirring our hearts to the depths. These are the truths which flow through the whole evolution of humanity. As spiritual science reveals their deep, deep source, the Gospels will one day become a precious treasure, prized at their true worth. People will then understand what it is recounted in the Gospel of St. Luke. Quote, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. It all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the inn. Close quote. Steiner again. It was for him, the firstborn of those who would become self-aware in their souls, that the holy mystery power of ancient days had passed over from the Danish peninsula to the distant east. Quote, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Close quote. Steiner again. Nertha too, moving across the land, had announced to the old Vanin consciousness, that is to say to the subconscious of atavistic clairvoyance, the arrival of human beings on the earth. Quote, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, close quote, Steiner again, And now the heavenly powers proclaimed what the Nertha priest in the old northern mystery cult had proclaimed to the woman about to conceive, quote, The revelation of the divine from the heights takes place at the time when there is peace among men who are of good will. As Tacitus narrates that quote, then there are joyous days and wedding feasts. At those times no war is waged, no weapons are handled, the sword is sheathed. Close quote. The great goal for which human beings must strive is the attainment of the power to gaze into the course of the evolution of humanity. For the mystery of Golgotha too through which earth evolution received its deeper meaning, will become fully comprehensible when its place in the whole evolution of humanity is understood. In future times, when materialism has disappeared, we will know not an abstract theory, 
but as a concretely real experience that we are of divine origin. And the ancient holy mystery truths will again be understood. Then this twilight time will be over, a time in which the Christ, it is true, lives on earth, but can be understood only to a small extent by waking consciousness. For the Gnostic conception of Christ faded away. Understanding for Jesus developed in connection with the old Nerthus cult, but in unconsciousness. In the future, however, humanity will have to bring both these unconscious streams to consciousness and unite them, and then an ever greater understanding of the Christ will take root on earth, an understanding that will unite the mystery knowledge with a great and renewed gnosis. Those who take the anthroposophical view of the world seriously and the movement associated with it will see in what it has to say to mankind no child's play, but great and earnest, soul-shaking truths. And our souls must submit to this because it is right that we should be shaken by greatness. The earth is not only a mighty living being, but also an exalted spirit being. And just as the greatest human genius could not stand at the height he reaches in later life, if he had not first developed through childhood and adolescence, so the mystery of Golgotha could not have taken place. The divine would not have been able to unite with earth evolution, if at the beginning of earthly days it had not, in a different but still divine manner, descended to the earth. The form taken by the revelation of the divine from the heavenly heights was not the same in the ancient Nerthus cult as it was at a later time, but for all that it was a true revelation. And though the knowledge contained in this ancient wisdom was atavistic in character, it was still infinitely more exalted than the materialistic view of the world which in the sphere of knowledge so brutally reduces humanity to the level of the animal. In Christianity we have to do with the fact, not theory. The theory is necessary and important for the consciousness that has had to develop in the further course of human evolution. But the essence of Christianity as such, the mystery of Golgotha, is an accomplished fact which entered, to begin with, into subconscious currents. This was still possible in Asia Minor at the time when the union of Christ with the earth took place. Shepherds, men bearing a similarity with those among whom the Nerthus cult flourished, are also described in the Gospel of St. Luke. I can give only very brief indications of these things. If we were able to speak of them at greater length, you would find that there are deep foundations for what I have told you today. It is because the human being descended from spiritual heights that the revelation of the divine from the heavenly heights took place. The revelation had to be expressed in this form to those who knew from the ancient wisdom that human destiny is united with the stars of heaven. But what must live on earth as the result of Christ's union with a man of earth, that can be understood only very gradually. The message is twofold, quote, revelation of the divine from the heights, close quote. Quote, peace in the souls on earth who are of good will, close quote. 
Without this second part, Christmas, the festival of the birth of Christ, has no meaning. Not only was Christ born for human beings, human beings also crucified him. Even behind this lies necessity. But it is nonetheless true that human beings crucified the Christ. And it may dawn upon us that the crucifixion of the wooden cross on Golgotha was not the only crucifixion. A time must come when the second part of the Christmas proclamation can be understood, quote, peace to those on earth who are of good will, close quote. Yet we must also feel and experience what is negative, that human beings are very far indeed from a true understanding of Christ and the Christmas mystery. Does it not cut to the very heart that we ourselves should be living at a time when humanity's longing for peace is shouted down? It seems almost a mockery to celebrate Christmas in days when voices are raised in outcry against the desire for peace. Today, while the worst has not actually befallen, we can still fervently hope that a change will take place in human souls, that a Christian feeling intent on peace will supersede these demonstrations against the desire for it. Otherwise, it may not be those who are struggling in Europe today, but those coming over from Asia who will one day avenge this rejection of the desire for peace. It may be they who will have to preach Christianity and the mystery of Golgotha to humanity on the ruins of European spiritual life. And then the indelible record will remain that at Christmas time, 916 years after the tidings of peace on earth, two people of goodwill, humanity actually reached the point of rampaging against the desire for peace. May it not happen. May the good spirits at work behind the true message of Christmas protect luckless European humanity from such a fate. That is the end of the lecture. I'm going to read the footnotes. One is Arius. The sun, quote, The sun was once created out of nothing by the divine will, was the first creature and the creator of the universe, hence to be called God, though subject to the Father. Close quote. This was declared heretical by the Council of Nicaea, in A.D. 325 and replaced by the Athanasian principle of faith. Quote, the Son of God is from eternity, not created, but begotten out of the being of the Father and is of like nature to the Father. Close quote. Streams of blood were shed in consequence of these doctrines, impenetrable though they may seem to us. And another footnote. Manus, M-A-N-N-U-S, had three sons, after whom the people nearest the North Sea are called Ingavones, those of the center Hermiones, the remainder Iste. Close quote. And again, the end of Lecture 4 by Rudolf Steiner.